Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19. In your Bibles. Psalm 19. Okay, I think the fan's going to have to go. To avoid the hurricane sound, and to keep my outline from blowing across the roof. Psalm 19. Let's begin reading at verse number 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their works to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven, and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servants also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we approach this subject today and ask for your help. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to us. Lord, right now, whatever whatever might be on our mind, whatever might be vying for our attention, whatever our adversary, the devil, might be causing us to think about and dwell upon, I, I just pray, Father, that you would push those things aside and that you would speak to us today. Speak to us clearly, plainly. Fill me with your spirit, Father. I don't deserve to stand here, and yet, Lord, you have put me here. And so I pray, Father, that you would just fill me with your spirit. The people would not see me. They'd hear you. And I pray, Father, you teach us. This is such an important topic. Teach us. Make it clear to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Article 2 of the Friendship Bible Church Constitution, we have our statement of faith. Allow me to share uh, that with you for just a moment here this morning. Perhaps some of you have not heard it before. Article 2, Statement of Faith. We believe there is one and only one living and true God. And that in the unity of the Godhead there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe in the inspiration, inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency of the Scriptures, consisting of the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. We believe the biblical accounts of the creation of the universe through the direct and immediate creative acts of God. We believe in the unique creation of man in the image and likeness of God, and that physical life is his sovereign gift. The deliberate killing of the unborn, the sick, disabled, or elderly is wrong and an abomination before him. We believe that all men are sinners by nature and in conduct and cannot save themselves. We believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, and that he is both fully God and fully man. 
We believe in the substitutionary death of Christ and in his literal bodily resurrection from the dead. We believe in salvation by grace alone through faith in the finished redemptive work of Christ alone and that no works of man, however good, need to be or can be added for salvation. Evidence of salvation appears in the holy fruits of repentance, faith, and newness of life. We believe in the eternal salvation of all who put their faith in Christ, that all who are truly born again are kept secure by the Father. We believe in the primacy of the church as an ordained institution of God with Christ as its head. We recognize the authority of the local church and subscribe to the ordinances of baptism by immersion in the Lord's Supper for all those who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We believe in the reality and personality of the devil or Satan, the enemy of God and man, and that he is destined for eternal judgment in the lake of fire. We believe in the bodily resurrection, immortality, and rapture of all believers at Christ's imminent coming, and that his coming is both pre-tribulational and premillennial. And we believe in the existence of a literal heaven and a literal hell, and that all men spend eternity in one of the two places. Now there are a couple of other statements that we have in our statement of faith. Besides those doctrinal ones, we have a couple of statements in there that would be legal in nature. In today's litigious society, the statement of faith and the Constitution has to also protect the church as well as say what we believe. And so we have a statement like this. I think it's the very last one in our statement of faith. It says, we believe Christians are prohibited from bringing civil lawsuits against other Christians or the church to resolve personal disputes. They're for legal reasons. It's got a biblical basis, though. And there's also, of course, some things that we have in our statement of faith which are there because of the depravity of our age that have become necessary that you would not have seen in statements of faith years ago. For example, we have this statement. We believe that God has commanded that no intimate sexual activity be engaged in outside of a marriage between one man and one woman. We believe that the only scriptural marriage is the joining of one man and one woman. Twenty years ago, there would have been no such thing in a church constitution. It would have not been necessary. Who would have believed? We'd have to define marriage, but we do not. That was then. Well, for the next few weeks in our Roots Down, Fruit Up series of sessions that we're going through there, if the Lord allows, we're going to be digging deeper into this statement of faith. I want us to think a little bit more about what we believe as a church. We're not going to examine every one of those statements individually. We're going to kind of lump them together under several different headings and uh, talk about them that way so it, it, it won't be as long as that sounded. Uh, but nonetheless, we're going, to, uh, we're going to look at this thing and try to make sure that we understand we're going to dig deeper into what we believe as a church. That's important, is it not? That's part of what we're trying to do. We're trying to find out and, and, and deepen our relationship with each other and with God, and we need to understand what our basis of belief is. Here, obviously, it's the Bible. But that explains a little bit about what we believe from the Bible. Today, I want us to dig deeper into bibliology, or what we believe about the Bible. And in doing so, we're going to kind of shed light on two of those statements that we just read. And we're going to shed light on this one. We believe in the inspiration, inerrancy, authority, sufficiency of the Scriptures consisting of the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. And we're going to, in a way, shed light on another one that said, we believe the biblical account of the creation of the universe and the direct and immediate creative acts of God. Just the first part of that, really. We believe the biblical account. Matter of fact, that almost could be our statement of faith all along, could it not? We believe the biblical account. So today I want us to dig a little bit deeper in this matter of bibliology, what we believe about the Bible. You know, five years ago I preached a series entitled, What I Believe. It was the very first series that I preached in this church. 
when the Lord called me here and when we got together as a family in this place. In, in this particular set of discussions, I'm going to go back and I'm going to draw very heavily on that. And some of you, the, the handful of people who were here five years ago, may say, wait a minute, now I've heard you say that before. Uh, I don't apologize for that. Because you know what? What we believed five years ago, sticking well ought to be what we believe now, five years later. And Lord willing, it'll be the same thing we believe when the Lord comes back again. So if you hear some things you heard before, well, just praise the Lord. Say amen to it. And that'll be enough. So we're going to dig a little bit deeper today. Everything about our Christian faith hinges on what we believe about the Bible. You know, anytime you talk to somebody, it really comes down to that. If, if somebody does not believe the Bible and is not willing to at least entertain the thought that the Bible is the Word of God, you're going to get nowhere with it. You're never going to be able to talk to them about the Lord because this is what talks about the Lord. This is, this, this is the basis of it all. The Bible is the Word of God, and it's therefore all we need in order to order, in order to order and guide our lives. It is sufficient. It is not deficient in any way. And that's what we want to make sure we understand as a church. We don't need to add anything to this book. We just need to believe it. I read one time about a preacher whose car broke down along the road. And he went into the local bar. Preachers ought not to do that. But he went into the local bar to uh, use the phone to call and get the tow truck to come. And as he walked in the bar, he saw, lo and behold, there was one of his parishioners, Frank, sitting at the bar, looking all woe be gone. And he walked up to Frank and he said, Frank. And Frank was all disheveled and just looking a mess. And his clothes were all ratty. And he said, what happened to you? And he said, I haven't seen you in ages. And last time I saw you, you were successful and doing well. Frank told this long, woe-be-gone story of bad investments and how he, had, he just messed up his life and all this. He said, I just don't know what to do. And the pastor put his arm around him and he said, Frank, here's what you need to do. This is silly advice, but this is what this pastor said. He said, here's what you need to do. You need to go home and you need to take your Bible down off the shelf and you need to open it up and you need to just put your finger down on a verse and whatever that verse says, that's what you need to do. So they parted their ways. A few weeks later, a few months later perhaps, Pastor's someplace, and he has to look across the street, and here comes Frank. Frank's walking down the road. He's wearing a Gucci suit. He's got a Rolex watch on his wrist, and he's, and he's uh, just stepping out of a Mercedes-Benz automobile. And the preacher walks over to him and says, Wow, what, what happened to you? Things have certainly changed. And Frank said, Pastor, I owe it all to you. I did exactly what you said. I went home, and I opened my Bible, and I put my finger down on there, and I looked at it and said, Chapter 11. Oh, come on. That's supposed to be funny. I'm going to quit telling jokes. I just can't do it. But nonetheless, whether or not, whether or not that's a good example or not, isn't it illustrative of the truth? Everything we need for life is in the book. That's not a good example, but it's an example. Our text, Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19 tells us this very thing. Psalm 19 is all about God's revelation to man. It describes his general revelation in verses 1 through 6. And it describes his special revelation in verses 7 through 14. We're not going to really talk about the first six verses, but let me just mention them a little bit. Verse number one says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Paul said the same thing in Romans chapter 1. He said, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. People have a revelation of God, whether or not they have this book. The heavens declare it. 
conversation one time with a friend of mine, and we were talking about some recent uh, discovery, some new planetary discovery or something. And I don't know if you just read, I, I think just this past week in the news, about how they have found this, I think, black hole now that they believe is all full of water. Did you see that one? And of course, this is, supposedly there's this massive supply of water out in space now that is like a million times more than all the water we have on the Earth. And so, of course, they're saying that is evidence that there must be life someplace else. Well, this friend of mine that I was talking with was having the same conversation about whatever this most recent astronomical discovery was that we were discussing. And this person was saying, it is so ridiculous for us to think that we are the only ones in the universe. It is so ridiculous. It, it, it's actually arrogant for us to think we're the only ones. Look at that out there. There must be more. And yet I, I maintain, as I have always maintained, Psalm chapter 19 and verse number 1 explains that statement perfectly well for me. The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens are not for us. The heavens are to point us to Him. And when we look at the astonishing millions of stars and all the things that are up there, they are meant to say, Look at me. I am God. Come to me. And so I believe the first six verses here in Psalm chapter 19 remind us that God has declared Himself throughout all of His creation. And when we look up into the millions of stars that He has created, it ought to be a humbling thing to us and remind us it's about Him. But the other part of this psalm doesn't talk about that general revelation. It talks about the special revelation of God and the special revelation of God. But I mean this, the Word of God, the book which He has provided to tell us about Him. And I want us to notice especially, we're going to concentrate the rest of our time this morning on verses 7 through 9. 7 through 9, the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Six statements there, and all of those statements are about the Word of God. All of them. There are six different descriptions of the Word of God that are in those two verses, or three verses. It's called the law, the testimony, the statutes, the commandment, the fear, and the judgments. All descriptions of the Word of God. There are six characteristics mentioned there. It is perfect, it is sure, it is right, it is pure, it is clean, it is true. There are six results of the Word of God in our life. It converts the soul, it makes wise the simple, it rejoices the heart, it lightens the eyes, endures forever, and is righteous altogether. And finally, there are six reminders there that it is of God. It is of God. The Bible is of the Lord. It's called the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and the judgment of the Lord. So let's notice those six things. And I don't know if we'll go through all this today. We may just do a couple of them and then, and then pray because we'll come to the end of our time. But pick it up next time. But six different statements about the Word of God that will help us. Let's notice, first of all, the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. That word law is the Hebrew word Torah, which we've all heard before. If you've been in a Jewish synagogue, you have seen them pick up the scroll, which they refer to as the Torah, because that's what it means, the law. And that word means law or direction or instruction. And so when we read the law of the Lord is perfect, what we're reading is a word that is used to describe the teaching or didactic nature of the Bible. It emphasizes the fact that God is teaching man through his word. And what is the characteristic of God's teaching? It's perfect. How is his instruction? 
It's perfect. How is his law? It's perfect. Or if we were to expand upon the, the definition of that word perfect, we know it also means complete, it also means whole, it also means entire, it also means sound. So it's all of those things. The law of the Lord is complete and whole and entire and sound. And the result of it all is that it converts the soul. It converts the soul. You know, it is the word of God that saves none of us will ever know God without this. None of us can come to Christ without the word of God. It is the word that saves. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 16. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Peter said, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which lives and abides I read an interesting story one time, and any time I read these stories anymore, I'm suspect, because I've looked a few of them up on Snopes.com, and you find out that they're, they're bogus. At least Snopes.com thinks they're bogus. But nonetheless, I'll tell you this story. Hopefully it's true. It's a story of a fellow by the name of Menelik II. Anybody ever hear of Menelik II? Or maybe it's Menekil II. I have it spelled two different ways here. Anyway, the, the, the history that I have here says that he was one of the greatest rulers in African history, and he was the creator of modern Ethiopia. He was born in 1844. He was captured during an enemy raid, and he was held prisoner for ten years. And after he escaped, this Menelik II declared himself head of the province of Shua and began conquering neighboring kingdoms and developed them into what is now modern Ethiopia with himself as the emperor. It is said that when Italy tried to take over Ethiopia, Menelik's army met and crushed the Italians at the Battle of Adua. So this victory, as well as his efforts to modernize Ethiopia, he's responsible for schools and telephones and railroads, supposedly made Menelik the second world famous. But he apparently had one little-known eccentricity, and that was this. Whenever he was ill, whenever he got sick, he would tear out a few pages from the Bible and eat them. And he believed that this made him feel better and healed him. He believed this. Until one day in December 1913, when apparently he had a struggle. And he was feeling so bad as a result of his struggle that he ordered the entire book of Kings to be torn out of his Bible. He ate every page of it and promptly died. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but it is supposedly what happened to Menelik II. And you know the thing is, I think, in a warped way, a warped way, very warped, I think he almost had the right idea. You see, we cannot know salvation without the Word of God. It is the Word of God that saves. And apart from the Word of God, there is no salvation. The key is, don't eat it. Read it. That's the, that's the key. The Word of God converts the soul. Matthew Henry said, The Holy Scripture is of much greater benefit to us than night or day, than the air we breathe, or the light of the sun. To recover man out of his fallen state, there is need of the Word of God. And Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said it is God's word rather than man's comment on God's word, which is made mighty with souls. Try men's depraved nature with philosophy and reasoning, and it laughs your efforts to scorn. But the word of God is the words of transformation. So, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Number two, the testimony, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And that word testimony comes from a Hebrew word that means witness or testimony. And so in contrast to the previous word law, which talked about the divine instruction of the word, this particular word testimony describes the Bible as a divine witness. 
It emphasizes the fact that God is giving testimony to who he is and to what he requires. And what is the characteristic of his testimony? It's sure. The testimony of the Lord is sure. So you can mark it down. You can take it to the bank. You can rely on the testimony of the Lord is sure. That's the critical truth. Don't you think in this day and age when the whole world is trying to cast doubt upon the Word of God, when every time you turn on the Discovery Channel or some other cable network t- uh, channel, you see somebody has come out with some new discovery which supposedly sheds doubt on that which we know to be true. It's important for us to remember that the testimony of the Lord is sure. There is nothing sure. Our adversary, the devil, wants us to believe that the Bible is questionable. He, he wanted Eve to believe that. We're back in the Garden of Eden. That was the very first tool he used on her. He said, yay, have God said, if you've got to keep the Bible anyway. He, he caused her to doubt the validity of the Bible or the testimony of Scripture. But no, the testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. Peter said it like this in 2 Peter chapter 1. He said, We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, wherein you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your house. What Peter was saying is, the testimony that we have in Scripture is as trustworthy as the very voice of God that he heard from heaven. As a matter of fact, he even says it's more trustworthy, which I always find one of the most amazing statements in the Bible. Sure, sure. To get an idea of the sureness of the testimony here in Scripture, you need to picture God as a witness on a, on a stand. We've seen enough, uh, you know, silly lawyer shows on TV to get that picture in our mind, don't we? I mean, we, we know what that's supposed to look like. And we can picture if God is sitting there on the stand, and we can imagine the prosecuting attorney asking question after question, can we not? But the thing is, God's testimony never breaks down. God's testimony is absolutely sure. He doesn't falter. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't stumble over his words. The prosecutor tries every attempt he can, comes at it from every angle, as we know they do, and he cannot make God falter because the testimony of the Lord is sure. I love the song that says the Bible stands like a rock undaunted amid the raging storms of time. Its pages burn with the truth eternal and they glow with the light sublime. The Bible stands like a mountain towering far above the works of men. Its truth by none ever was refuted and destroyed. They never can. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It makes wise the simple. When we have more questions than answers, we can go to this sure testimony. When we don't know what to do, when our mind is bombarded by the contradictory claims of this world, when we're told that our views are unsophisticated and uneducated and old-fashioned, we can go to this book. When we vacillate between belief systems, when we, like the Father in Mark chapter 9, cry out in despair, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief, in all those times, we can say the testimony of the Lord is sure. I can count on it. I can depend on it. Thank you to the bank. Number three. The statutes of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The statutes of the Lord are right. And here we have the word statutes, which is a word that means precept or commandment. It's a word that kind of includes the meaning of the other two words. It has the meaning of teaching included in it, as in the word law. 
It also has the word, the idea of testimony in it, as in that second one. However, it seems to be more about guidelines than either witness or law. And so, what this one seems to be saying to us, the statutes of the Lord are right. That word statute seems to be saying to us that the guidelines, the word of God contains divine guidelines for us to help order our lives. We know that's true, don't we? The scriptures are full of guidelines to help us know how to live. We live today in the day and age of the how-to book. You ever go on to Google or Amazon or one of those places and, and just do a search for how-to books? It's astonishing how many will come up. I did that once and I got 32,000 hits. And that was a while ago. I'll bet you there's even more of them now. We live in the day and age when you walk into any bookstore and you'll see how-to books live at the shelves. Everybody wants to know how to live. If you want, if you want to be a success, write a how-to book. The Bible is the greatest how-to book that's ever been written. And what does it say here about the characteristics of God's guidelines? It says they're right. They're right. Always right. His directions are always correct. His path is always straight. And as a result, they rejoice the heart. We may not always understand God's guidelines. God's guidelines may not always go along with what the world says. But they're always right. They're always right. And because of that, they're the only source that you're ever going to find. Why do, we, why do we want to look every place else? Why do we as Christians want to go every place but the Bible? These are the guidelines for living. I read a quote one time that said, The man who walks with God always knows in what direction he's going. See, I have pretty good knowledge of what it's like to be on the wrong path. I have pretty good knowledge of what it's like to turn the wrong way and go down the wrong road. I've told you the story before, but I'll tell it again now. This is, I'm going, to, I'm going to have to introduce this one. This is supposed to be funny. At the end of this, you should laugh. Okay? Have we got that down? All right. Ah. But unfortunately, this is a true story, so at the time, it wasn't funny at all. You see, it was uh, when we lived in Pontiac, Michigan, when we, when we were uh, at Bible College up there, my wife was pregnant with Joshua. Great with child in the biblical sense. And we were driving down the road one day, and we knew that the time was upon us. We knew that it was close, but we were just enjoying a ride. We were going down the road until my wife reached over and tapped me on the arm. And she said, as only a wife can say at that moment, with perfect clarity, she tapped me on the arm. She said, honey, I think it's time. And I said, with all the calmness that every husband would have in a moment like that, I said, okay, well, we'll go to the hospital then. And I turned my car onto the, the, the next intersection, which just happened to be wide track drive in Pontiac, Michigan. Anybody been on a wide track drive in Pontiac, Michigan? Four lanes wide, one way, going around the city. And of course, I turned the wrong way onto wide track drive. And you know, there is no joy whatsoever when you're driving the wrong way on a four lane highway and cars are coming at you that way. But the fact is, the fact is, the ways of God are always right. Always right. The Bible is filled with guidelines for raising our children. Why don't we use them? The Bible is filled with guidelines for having sweetness in our marriages and our relationships. Why don't we listen? The Bible is filled with guidelines for success in business, for wisdom and finance. God's guidelines give us a straight road. We need to follow. We need to follow. Number four, the commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The commandments of the Lord. <laughs> this word, commandment, it means exactly what it says. It's from a Hebrew word that means commandment, either of men or of God. And when it's used to describe the word of God, it reminds us that the Bible contains just that, commandments. It contains the decrees of God. It reminds us, that word does, of the authoritative nature of what we have here. 
in this world. Non-optional character of the Bible. Jesus one time rebuked the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. In Matthew chapter 15, you can read the story. But in summing up his rebuke of them, he said, and he was quoting from Isaiah, but he said this, These people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as, do teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Every time I read that passage, every time I come across it in my devotions, I wonder, are we like that today? Do we, have we gotten to the point where we have forgotten the commandments of God and we are substituting for them the commandments of men? We need to remember that this is the non-optional decrees of God. There is a scene in uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. I believe he's, Scrooge is speaking to, I think it's the ghost of Christmas present, I believe he's talking to. And in this particular scene, this ghost shows him two small children. And these two small children are all emaciated and sick and horrible looking and poverty stricken and dressed in rags. And Scrooge asks what they are and the ghost proceeds to tell him they're a result of your greed and your avarice. They're, they're what you have caused. And Scrooge says, cover them. I do not wish to see them. And the ghost covers them up. And he says to Scrooge, they are hidden. Nevertheless, they live. They live. And you know the fact is, nobody wants to hear about the decrees of God today. You know what's the fastest way we can enter this church? is for me to start up, stand up here and preach about the decrees of God. For me to stand up here and tell you the Bible says there are certain things that you must do. Nobody wants to hear that today. Preach about grace, preacher. Well, amen, I love preaching about grace. But the fact is, that other part is still in there. And I have no, no choice but to say it. And we have no choice as believers but to believe it. John MacArthur said, The Bible is not full of a lot of suggestions. It is commandments. Binding authoritative commandments. This is what God requires. And for those who respond, there is blessing. For those who do not, there is judgment. And so the commandments of the Lord is pure. Enlightening the eyes. The commandments. And what's the characteristic of that? Well, it's pure. Pure. There are all kinds of meanings to that particular Hebrew word. Most English translations, whatever one you're holding probably says pure there. You're probably seeing that in your translation. But I found at least one that has chosen the, the meaning of clear, which is another meaning of that word, and I like that. I like that thought. What that says is God's commandments are clear. They're not hard to understand. God has made it plain what he expects from us. And that's true, isn't it? There's no mystery. There's no mystery. First John chapter 5, you can look at there on your own. John taught that, that, that obeying the commandments of God is not grievous. It's not hard. He's not made it hard to do what he has commanded. And so the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Enlightening the eyes. Of course, that, that just means it eliminates our path. When we stay on the, when we listen to the commandments of God, it illuminates our way. As the psalmist said, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Two more and we're done. Two more. Number five. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And I don't have a whole lot about this particular one. I find this one a little bit difficult to get my brain around. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. That word fear, I think, is used to describe, in describing the Word of God, is trying to uh, teach us about the reverence of God. Uh, that particular aspect of that word fear. I think it's telling us that God is worthy of our worship. Fear of the Lord is clean. Not a speck of evil, not a speck of impurity in the Word of God. And it endures forever. It is amazing, is it not, how this book has stood the test of time? 
You know there are aspects of this book that are thousands of years old. The book of Job is probably somewhere around 6,000 years old. Genesis, somewhere around in there, I suppose, is saying thousands of years old. And yet, in spite of its antiquity, it speaks just as clearly today to you and to me as it ever did. It stands the test of time. Well, the last one. The last one. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That word judgment refers to exactly what it says. Justice. The act of deciding a, a case. We learned earlier that the Bible is the testimonies of God. It's God's testifying as to the validity of who he is and what he wants from us. Well, here now, what this is saying to us is the Bible has got the verdict. It is in passing judgment on us. And what are the characteristics of his judgment? Well, the truth. The truth. How does that contrast with some of the judges that we have in our world today? You don't have to go too far back in reading the news to see some very interesting court cases that have come up in recent days when we would look at to shake our heads and say, my goodness. Not so with the judgments of God. True. True. We have an entire judicial system in this country that is based on the uh, assumption that judges are going to mess up. Based on the assumption that there's going to be injustice. That's why we have an appeal system. If judges were perfectly just, there would be no reason for an appeal system. But we have one. You know, there is no appeal with God. None. His judgment is already passed. And here it is. It's already described for us in the Word of God. The judgments of the Lord are true. And they are righteous. Altogether. Romans chapter 3.10 says, There is none righteous, no one, not one. None of us are righteous. None of us. But the judgments of God are. Abraham asked God one time. I always, I always find this amazing. When Abraham was praying with God right before God went down and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham asked God one time, he said, Shall not the judge of all the earth be right? Isn't that an amazing thing? Can you imagine the goal to look God and say to God, Shall not the judge of all the earth be right? And Abraham asked him that question. It's a true question, is it not? And it's, the answer is yes. The judge of all the earth will do right, does do right, always does right. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous all together. So six statements about what we believe about the Bible. This psalm goes on, and you can study it on your own. There's several other things that are mentioned here. It goes on to try to describe the wealth of the Bible. It says there's nothing greater in value. Nothing brings greater wealth, verse number 10. Nothing brings greater pleasure. Nothing brings greater profit, verse number 11 in the Bible, both in eternity and in life on earth. The psalmist also points out that the Bible changes us. It, it illuminates our sin and our need before God. That's verses 12 and 13. And then he concludes with a prayer that springs out of a heart that is just such a heart, a heart that has been changed by the Word of God. I know this may seem like somewhat tedious stuff, and this may seem like, uh, I don't know, kind of a long... Uh, a long study on this today, but I think this is important. And I hope you agree it's important. We believe in the Bible in this church. We as believers need to get back to loving the Bible. We need to delight in it. We need to read it. We need to meditate in it. We need to order our lives around it. We need to change our lives when we come across something that's in, you know, is different than the way we're living. We need to base every single thing we do on the Bible and on nothing else. I'll never forget an illustration I read one time about Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi was, of course, a legendary football coach. And there's a lot of good quotes and things that you can look up about Vince Lombardi. But one time, Vince Lombardi walked into uh, uh, the very first practice with his team. Professional football players. Now, you think these guys know something about football, wouldn't you? 
And he walked in the very first thing, and he stood there and he gathered all of these professional football players around him, and he held a football up in the air. And he said, gentlemen, this is a football. Any questions? And, you know, you look at that and you think, well, why would he say that? There was a professional football players, but his point was, if we don't get the basics down, if we don't understand the most important and fundamental aspect of that which we believe, then we're not going to get anywhere. There is no football game without a football. There is no Christianity without a sport. No. No. Therefore, we as a church can boldly proclaim, we believe in the inspiration, inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency of the scriptures consisting of the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments.